So last week, we saw the 12 apostles being sent out by Christ, two by two, to proclaim the word of God. They were to cast out demons. They were to heal the sick. They were to preach that people should repent. They were going about through all the villages and towns in Israel. And this was extremely, an extremely strange phenomenon. People in Israel never just went out and started preaching just because they feel like it. There were trained rabbis who were, they would go on teaching tours. But everybody knew that this was a rabbi. This was a person who had been sitting under the teaching of other rabbis for his, basically his entire life. This was a person who had memorized the entire Old Testament, or at least the first five books of the Bible. These were people that were supposed to be doing that. Nobody just got up and started preaching or, or went around to different towns and different places and started teaching. In the Old Testament, there were prophets. And those prophets would come and they would step up and they would start proclaiming from the rooftops and in the streets and they would go before the king and they would say things like, you should repent. When the people were carried away into exile, into Babylon for their unfaithfulness, there were still a few more of those uh, preachers, those prophets who would come and they would proclaim. Uh, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi were all prophets who, or maybe even Zechariah, anyway, they were all uh, prophets who preached to the people after they came back from exile. But Malachi was the last one. After Malachi... There was 400 years of nothing. Now, there was still history, and Israel still had things going on. They went from being under the thumb of the Persians to being under the thumb of the Greeks. And their temple was uh, destroyed-ish, de defiled, I guess is, is a better term for it. And there was a whole lot of really tumultuous times for the Jews that they were not hearing anything from God. It was an unprecedented time of silence from the Lord. There had never been a time where someone had not, other than when the people of Israel were in, uh, enslaved in Egypt, was the last time that there was silence from God. So they had almost a thousand years of regular prophecy from God through either Moses or through a leader like Samuel or through the prophets like Isaiah or, or what's his name? I totally blanked. Fought against yeah, Ahab. Yeah. Elijah. Elijah was what I was going to say. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of those guys. But at the end of Malachi, when Malachi finished his ministry, when he either died or was murdered for saying what he said, there was nothing. It was, it was radio silence from God. And then all of a sudden, after 400 years of nothing, 430 years actually, all of a sudden... A guy who eats crickets stands up in the wilderness and starts saying that people should repent. And people flock to him in the thousands. He was just a guy. He, he was descended from the Levites, so he, maybe he had a little bit of training. But he had, kind of, he had taken a Nazarite vow, which meant that he had a long hair, long beards. He wore camel skin. He ate crickets and honey. Well, locusts and honey, but they look like crickets. And he was living in the wilderness. 
And all of a sudden, just people went, were coming out of the woodwork to hear from this prophet. In a, a little while later, Jesus stepped up and began to preach. A carpenter who nobody is really sure who his dad is, which is a really big deal for the people in Israel. And he starts going out and proclaiming that people should repent. But not only does he go out and start proclaiming that people should repent, he's raising people from the dead. That's a big deal. He's touching lepers and they're being cleansed. He is doing amazing things. He's casting out demons. And then he gathers a group of fishermen from Capernaum and a few other guys, a tax collector, a a zealot, and he sends them out two by two to do kind of the same thing and to preach the same message of repentance. Very, very strange. This would be the same as uh, a plumber from Vanderhoof named Bob going to Prince George and gathering some truckers and sending them out to preach that people should repent and to go on preaching tours and to go to every single town in BC to repent, to tell people to repent in the name of Bob. That would be weird, right? We understand that that would be kind of strange if that happened in this day. It would probably, well, it might make the news. It's hard to know. But, you know, Bob is going around with thousands of people following him and he's going into hospitals and raising people from the dead. It's pretty impressive. I want you to recognize kind of the strangeness of this so that we can put ourselves in Herod's shoes a little bit. With that in mind, turn to Mark chapter 6, if you're not there already. Mark chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 14. We're going to read to verse 29 about King Herod and his encounter with John the Baptist. Please stand in reverence to the word of God. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work with him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like the one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had, se- who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him. I wanted him to be put to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard John, he was greatly perplexed, and yet... He heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and she said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, For the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Please be seated. 
I said before, nobody in Israel in Jesus's time had ever heard anyone going around telling people to repent. This was a crazy thing. Even the rabbis who would go on teaching tours wouldn't tell people to repent. They would give long dissertations on the nuances of the word of God in Deuteronomy. They would never tell people repent. That, that's never, that was never their message. And so when John stepped onto the stage and started saying this, it was a strange thing. King Herod had never experienced this except in, well, when then Jesus came after John the Baptist. And when word came to Herod that there was this person who was sending out disciples and all of them were preaching that people should repent, Herod had never experienced that except in one man. There's only one person that anyone could remember in the last 400 years that had said the things that Jesus was saying, and that was John the Baptist. Now, when we say John the Baptist, we don't mean that he was part of the Baptist denomination. We mean that he was a baptizer. He was John the Baptizer. Uh, don't get confused. There were not denominations in that day, even if it is the best denomination. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> that was not the case. This was a newsworthy event, and it was really weird. We tend to polish things up in the Bible. We tend to kind of take things for granted. But put yourself in the situation where you are hearing about a bunch of truck drivers from Prince George preaching that people should repent in the name of Bob. That's, that's strange. And the only other person that anyone could remember saying the same kinds of stuff was a guy who lived by the river and ate crickets. It's weird, okay? I hope you, I, I really want to hammer that into your mind. The thought was, when, when word got around that Jesus was doing this, the thought was, this cannot happen twice in the last two years. Like, seriously. This is too weird. And so people started to make predictions about what they thought was going on. Uh, some people between, or some people were thinking that, you know, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's Elijah raised from the dead. That could be. You know, but he's doing amazing works. So it's probably John the Baptist has just come back to life and he's doing amazing things. Other people said, oh, maybe he's like Jeremiah or maybe he's Ezekiel. Uh, maybe he's one of these guys that the Lord has sent back uh, from the dead to tell us whatever. But John, or when Herod heard of it, he was like, oh, obviously this is John whom I beheaded because nobody, nobody has ever said anything of, of the kind other than John. At this point, Mark takes uh, a break from his regular narrative to focus in not on Jesus, on someone other than Jesus. This is the first time since verse 1 of Mark that the author has chosen to take a break to give us some explaining. So obviously this is important for us to know. This is something that we need to see. John was a fearless preacher. He was extremely bold. Other gospel accounts tell us that he stood his ground against religious leaders, uh, the Roman overlords, the common people, and now Herod. Nobody was exempt from his preaching, I guess you could say. He would, when, when, the, uh, when the Pharisees came to him, he would say to them, you brood of vipers. When common people came to him, he would have a little bit more compassion on them. When the Romans came, he would tell them to stop being jerks. When the, uh, 
Yeah, and then when when Herod and him started having interactions, he started to tell Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herod at the time was the most powerful man in the region. And John didn't care. Stood against him. When the Romans invaded Israel, they set rulers over the people who were somewhat local. Herod the Great was placed as kind of like a servant king, kind of like a, a representative of the emperor over Israel. Uh, he was an Edomite, one of the descendants of Esau, people who were pretty much hated by every Jew, but he was set as the leader over the, the region of Israel. We read about him in the early chapters of Matthew's Gospel. Uh, when he heard about Jesus, he had all the little boys in Bethlehem murdered. And when Herod the Great died, his kingdom was divided into four territories, and his sons took over. And Herod Antipas was the ruler of the northern portion of Israel, the area of Galilee, which is, and Herod Antipas is the Herod that we're reading about today. Herod had a brother named Philip, Herod Philip. So this Herod would have been called Antipas by his friends, but he was Herod. Herod Philip, his brother, ruled over a different portion of their father's territory, and he was married to a woman named Herodias, who was actually their, I'm, I was either their niece or their aunt, but I can't remember. I thought that was kind of weird. And Herod Antipas convinced her to divorce his brother, Herod Philip, and to move in with him. And when this got around to John the Baptizer, he denounced Herod publicly and told him that he was in the wrong. And Herod responded by repenting. No. Herod responded by throwing John in prison. Herodias hated John because of his words, because he was always, and, and as a result, she was always looking to kill him. Herod, however, was sort of enamored by John. Being the most powerful man in the region, when someone stands against you, that's kind of a curious thing. When people should fear you and they don't, when people know that you could have them murdered at any point with no consequences to yourself, people tend to be afraid or, or at least pause before calling you out publicly. But, but John didn't care. And so this was a curious thing to Herod. And so he, he was actually kind of afraid of Herod. Isn't that hilarious that the most powerful man in Israel was afraid of a homeless man who ate crickets? Because John was just such a powerful preacher, and he was fearless. That is a preacher right there. You don't have a preacher like that, I don't think. I don't know. That's, that's a tough one. Herod listened to him preach with great curiosity. But he never actually believed the message of John. He never actually did what John told him to do. He never actually repented, so his curiosity was just kind of that. He was just kind of a curiosity. It was, it was an intellectual exercise without any kind of actual uh, commitment or assent to the words that, that uh, he was saying. Because it's not, it's not enough to be curious. There has to be acknowledgement of sin and repentance. We talked about this a little bit last week. Herod excused his sin. Sometimes we have the tendency to excuse our sin. We do not have that right. And Herod, being the most powerful man as he was, also did not have that right. We're not allowed to cover up our sin. 
We're not allowed to cover up our sin and then pretend we're Christians. Play at fake Christianity because we refuse to repent. Take a lesson from the curiosity of Herod and leave your sin behind. Herod goes off and has a birthday party. His stepdaughter does a striptease and in his drunken stupor, he promises her whatever she wants, whatever you want. In consultation with her mother, she asks for the head of John the Baptist. And Herod doesn't want to, but he wants to impress his guests. And so he agrees and John is murdered for the sake of a party. Jesus once called John the greatest man who ever lived. Jesus called John the greatest man who ever lived. And the greatest man who ever lived was killed at a drunken birthday party for a little girl. The followers of John came, they took his body, and they laid it in a tomb. This message that John preached, the message that Jesus preached, the message that the apostles preached, we talked about this a little bit last week, repent. This was the message that Jesus sent his apostles out to preach. This was the first thing that Jesus said when he started his ministry. He said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. This was something that John made his ministry goals, was to call people to repent. His baptism was a baptism of repentance. We don't hear that word very often. Repent. We don't like that word. Our culture tells us that's a bad word or it's outdated. It's not important. But you know what? Jesus thought it was important. And if Jesus thinks it's important, it's probably something that you should consider. I also mentioned last week uh, a quote from uh, Pastor Vody Bauckham. The 11th commandment. We believe that there's an 11th commandment. Thou shalt be nice. And we don't believe the other 10. In the name of being not judgmental, we excuse sin. We live in a hyper-individualized culture where the worst thing that you can do is tell someone else how to live their life. We've been pressured so hard into this mentality and we've seen other Christians do a bad job of calling people to repentance that we've completely thrown out the concept. We just say, just believe. Well, Jesus said, repent and believe. The Apostle Peter said, repent, then believe. This was the message. You cannot believe without repentance. When the church fails to call out sin for what it is, we blur the lines between Christian and non-Christian, and we have unsaved people sitting in our churches thinking that they're Christians because they've never been told to repent. I hope that's not us. Jesus commanded that people should repent. When we refuse to say that sin is sin, we end up being Herod, a man who was curious about the message, but ultimately did nothing. John the Baptist came on the scene and he called him out for his sin, and the response was not to repent, it was to shut him up. I can just imagine if John lived in our day, he would call people out for their sin and people would jump all over him. Who, do you, who are you to judge? 
Do you think you're so perfect? How dare you tell me how to live my life? But that's not really the point. The point is not to be perfect. The point is to be honest. John was not telling Herod, be perfect like me. John was telling Herod to repent because that's what the word of God says. This is not our standard for other people. This is God's standard for them. We have a responsibility to tell people God's standard and not to apologize for the things that Jesus said. Jesus said, if anyone is ashamed of me or my words, of him will I be ashamed in the last day. It's not a direct quote, but it's pretty close. Like Herodias, we often want to shut people up who are calling us on our sin, rather than repenting of the sin itself. But Jesus did not command us to go into all the world and be nice to everyone and to cover everything up and to just kind of shove aside people who are mean. He called us to go into all the world and preach the gospel, to make disciples and to teach them all that he has commanded us. So rather than shutting up those people, we are to believe that message and we are to repent. This, this idea of someone calling us out for our sin and then covering it up is actually think, something that happens in every church, in every town, in every generation since Herodias, since Jezebel rebelled against Elijah and his words. She sought to have Elijah killed because he was calling her out for her sin. Herodias sought to shut John up because he was calling her out for her sin. How many times have you sat in a sermon and heard the preacher denounce your particular sin that you love and completely ignored it and covered it up or left the church because he's mean? So if you're sitting here this morning and you're deep in your sin, don't excuse your sin. And again, I'm not telling you to be perfect like me because I have sin that I'm, I'm prone to excuse. But this is not the way it should be for us. As Christians, we are called, commanded, not just called. It's not a request. It's not a if you feel like it. It's a command. We're supposed to repent. And we're supposed to do it more than just one time, I think. We shouldn't just say, oh, well, I repented once, so I'm good. No, the, the whole of a Christian's life should be a life of repentance. Martin Luther, on October 31st in 1517, went up to the church door at Wittenberg, and he hammered his 95 theses to the door. And the first of those 95 theses was the, the whole of a Christian's life should be one of repentance. And I think that's true. We're not supposed to just cover things up. We're not supposed to go on sinning that grace may abound. That's Romans 6. He says, shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So if we're Christians, that means that we've put our sin to death and we're not going to live in it anymore and we're not going to say it's okay and we're not going to say that it's all right. And we're not going to seek it out. Yeah, we're still going to sin. Obviously, there is no possibility that you will be perfect in this life. But if you are excusing your sin, you're in danger. 
If you think that your sin is not sin or that somehow you were justified when you did that sin, maybe you were justified for responding in a way that was not nice, but you are still guilty before God. I am still guilty before God. Except for the fact that Jesus Christ has set us free. When we repent of our sin and go to Christ, it's because Christ has defeated every sin. We don't go down on our sinking ship. We cling to Christ because Christ went to the cross for our sins. We cast our burdens on Christ and we turn away from our sin. Herod listened with curiosity but didn't do anything. Don't be like Herod. Go to Christ. Herodias covered up her sin. She shot the messenger. Don't shoot the messenger. There's going to be a time where I'm going to stand in this pulpit and I'm going to call out your sin. And your tendency is to either say, shrug it off and say it's not that important. Or you're going to get mad at me for telling you what the Bible says. It's going to happen at some point or another. Maybe it already has. But rather than getting upset with me for saying the same thing that Jesus said, why don't you turn from your sin? That sin that drags you down to death. Turn from that sin and put your faith in Christ. Repent. And trust that Christ has covered those things up. And if you have a love for your sin like we all do, why don't you just pray, Lord, help me not to love my sin like I do. That's a good prayer to pray. When we love our sin, the best thing that we can do is say, Lord, I love my sin. I don't want to love my sin. And the Lord is faithful and just to forgive us of that sin too, because it's a sin to love our sin. When we acknowledge that, when we turn from it, Christ is faithful and just. Sin is sin. It's not my job to stand here and pat you on the head for being a good person. My job is to point you to Christ, who is the solution for your sin. Confess your sin to Christ. Ask him to change your affections. This is something that I have to do regularly. It's something that if you're a Christian, you should be doing regularly. And by regularly, I mean every day. Commit yourself to God's standard, and when you fail, cling to Christ. Last week, I closed with reading Psalm 51, which is David's psalm of repentance. And I'm going to do it again, because this is how we repent. This is our biblical example of how to repent. Psalm 51. David had been a faithful believer in God for years and years and years. And he still had to repent. This isn't something that you do in order to get Jesus into your heart. This is something that should be a continual practice in your Christian life. This was something that David had to do. And this is what he said. Psalm 51 verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, 
You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Father, we are so prone to pretend that you don't care about our sin. We are so prone to excuse ourselves. We are prone to self-love and to believing that somehow we are exempt from the need to repent. We are prone to cover up our sins or to get upset with people for calling us out. We tend to listen with curiosity but without conviction. Help us, Lord. Change our desires, change our affections, work your Holy Spirit in our souls and lead us in the path everlasting. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.